Hello and welcome to What Do We Call This, a CLS Alumni Society podcast that aims to center voices, conversations, and experiences, often left out of the narrative around immersive cross-cultural exchanges. My name is Miriam Tinberg. I did CLS Arabic in Amman, Jordan in 2012, and then did an ETA Fulbright in Rabat, Morocco in 2014 to 2015. And my name is Ashley Rivenbark, and I did CLS Chinese in Hangzhou, China in 2014. Hello, my name is Naika Pierre. I did the CLS China program in Suzhou in 2014. I'm the current producer of the What Do We Call This podcast series. And my name is Gabriel Carrillo. I did CLS Turkish in Baku, Azerbaijan in 2018. And I am the current editor of the podcast series. So yeah, we can formally invite you all. We have a big crew here today um, to the What Do We Call This podcast, CLS AS podcast. And Anes, if you want to start um, and sort of just intro us on some of the conversations that we might be having today and just more a little bit about yourself and then we can dive in. Mm -hmm. So hello everybody, uh, my name is Anes German and I was a first generation college student at Carthage College and I studied abroad through the Critical Language Scholarship in 2015 in Xi'an and then again in 2016 in Suzhou. And in between I studied with the Gilman Scholarship in Beijing and Chengdu. So I spent a total of 13 months during my junior year, uh, studying in four different cities in China, and it has absolutely molded me to be the individual that I am today. And you said earlier um, that you are in India now. What are what are you doing over there now? Yes, so I actually left my job in international education in November of last year. Um, well, truth be told, I lost my job actually and decided to take a very big risk. I fundraised, and then I decided that I wanted to pursue my passion and a career in writing creatively. And so I've been traveling through India, mostly through South India, and until I came up to Jaipur to take a Hindi language uh, course. And I've been writing a travel blog focusing on budget traveling, poetry, language acquisition. Uh, I just finished my first draft of a novel at 850 pages. So I'm very excited about that. And um, learning Hindi and also utilizing my Chinese skills in the meantime. Okay, so no big deal. <laughs> um, yeah, and if I don't know if maybe after the um, the podcast or in, in the in a link somewhere, maybe we can provide a link to some of your writing because I um, I'm friends with um, Anessa on Facebook and the writing is phenomenal. So I I I don't know oh. if if you would be willing to share it with our listeners, but it's incredible if we can get it shared with folks. Yeah, first of all, thank you for that compliment. Yeah. Like I'm just beaming right now. And yeah, I'll definitely share the link and um, also just open call. I'm always thrilled to collaborate with other artists. It doesn't have to be just within the writing genre, but um, I've collaborated with uh, visual artists, um, looking at collaborating with a film director here coming soon. And so if anybody is like, oh, I want to collaborate in you know Chinese or English or uh, my Hindi's not strong enough yet, but once that gets more developed, I'm definitely interested in multilingual, multimedia uh, collaboration mm. projects. Wow, this is great. Okay, so you were, before we started recording, you were talking about how you are quarantining in a hostel in India. <laughs> um, <laughs> so you are basically right now pursuing your creative passions then, right? And you are, are you incorporating Chinese at all? Or is this more so like a, it's turning into this broader language learning journey? And now you're, you've sort of transitioned into Hindi, or are you trying to figure out how to balance the Chinese background as well? Mm -hmm. So the vast majority of writing that I do is in English, um, though I have had an article published in Chinese. But right now, what I'm pursuing uh, is a balance of poetry, 
uh, blog writing, um, novel writing, and then a couple of other projects. So I am looking at translation opportunities, but a lot of my writing, whether that's for my blog, whether that's for articles, is absolutely very heavily influenced by my language background in Chinese, as well as my cultural experiences throughout China. Mm. And then how Hindi is introduced is a really interesting story, but um, it was actually an accident. Um, so I was at a hostel in DC uh, a few days before the CLS um, alumni ambassador program began in DC and the timing correlated so that I uh, could spend a few days there before uh, beginning the program. And I actually met an individual who is from Bengaluru and we began conversations discussing traditional Chinese culture, traditional Indian culture. And at one time I said, oh, gotcha. Like, okay, mean bye. Like, you know, I understand, I see. And he turned to me and he said, I didn't know you spoke Hindi. And I, I looked at him and I said, I didn't know I spoke Hindi either. <laughs> what did you think I said? And he said that he thought that I had said a cha which means, oh, I see, oh, I understand, and a plethora of other um, uh, meanings as well. And so for the rest of the day, that's all I asked was how do you say this, how do you say that mm. in Hindi. And um, that was my final semester, uh, senior year in college. And when I got back to campus, uh, I was still, I was working on my third thesis actually at the time. And I bought these Hindi language, um, like introductory elementary textbooks. And that just started a a journey and going forward, I'm interested in um, analyzing more about modern Sino-Indic literary traditions. Mm -hmm. So right now, um, I'm just covering a basis as well as I exploring my own creative writing um, through my travels here. Hmm. Wow. Do you find that there's a lot of correlations or connections between the two languages. I know they're different. I mean, they're, they're different. They're part of different language families, but um, just from my understanding, Chinese is a very kind of meaningful language. Like everything is just kind of wrought mm -hmm. with meaning. And then when I think about Hindi, I think of like the musicality of it and the passion behind it. And so I'm, I'm curious if you found connections in those areas between the two languages. Mm -hmm. Um, I'll give you a word for an example. So if you think of the word cha, uh, which means tea in Mandarin, uh, it's chai in uh, Hindi. So if we think of the English word for tea, it actually derives from the Fujianese, tei. Uh, I don't speak Fujianese, so please forgive uh, any wrong tones over that. Uh, let me put that disclaimer out there. But looking at the linguistic um, background of literally the word tea or cha or chai and you know etc and seeing where the trade route if you're looking at uh, historical trade routes from China through to other places in the world so that's one example of like one word that is embedded within uh, Hindi and there's a few words that I've noticed that are similar so um, but I'm you know I'm stumbling in Hindi most of the sentences I speak now are grammatically incorrect but I get my point across Right. Um, so that's a question that um, I definitely am excited to explore further on as I continue my language journey. Um, so we're really interested now. We've sort of done a script rewrite over the last year and have really tried to hone in on what we're trying to ask specifically about diversity and inclusion. And we think it's important for us to like set the tone and understand who is at the table, who's in the room, what are you bringing with you to this conversation? So we'd love for you, if you could, to just summarize your identity in a sentence or two. And it doesn't have to be limited to kind of 
you know, the the groups that we normally think of with diversity and inclusion, if you want, feel free to take that question and, and sort of just run with it. But we'd love to know, like, you know, who are you? Mm-hmm. So my name is Ines Ivy Dremen, and this was a name that I legally changed to um, in 2014. And I created this name. So Ines takes the character An. So if you think of Ping An or An Quan in Chinese, which means peace or safety, that's the first half of my first name. And then S is derived from the Latin Avenes, which means to disappear. Dremen is Old English for dream. And I selected this name because I wanted the meaning to connotate that by disappearing from where I was, I am safe to pursue my dreams. Mm. And part of my... Mm. Part of my dream is to help people. And so that's why I chose Ivy as the middle name. I also like plants um, so that my initials were AID. Um, Before I began college, I ran away from my abusive family. I cut off all contact from everybody I knew except for five people, a few teachers and a few friends in order to pursue college as a first generation student. Um, Carthage College became my home. And if it weren't for scholarships like like CLS, like Gilman, uh, as well as the uh, internal funding at my college, I would have, A, never had the ability to go to college, and B, never had the ability to study abroad in China, nor to be where I am now. Mm-hmm. And so this is my story, and this is my identity. Mm-hmm. Thank you for for sharing all of that with us. I think that you know, when we talk about diversity and inclusion, we sort of forget, or at least I do, um, really how deep, I don't know what the right phrase is, but people, co- you know, people come with their own stuff. And mm-hmm. we've, this is not a story that we've heard on this podcast. This is a story that I think all of us have heard in life and maybe have experienced ourselves. Um, so thank you so much for being open and vulnerable. And um, I have a lot of follow-up questions about that. I don't know how deep you want to get, but um, I'm particularly interested in as a first gen and, you know, coming from this family that it sounds like probably wasn't going to provide you with these opportunities. How did you hear about CLS and Gilman? Was it just kind of the, the, um, ad, you know, the administrators at on campus or, you know, how did you get in touch with that? So I have two absolutely wonderful people that I must thank, um, for t- telling me about CLS. One is Ben Simington, who is a CLS Hindi alumnus who attended Carthage College. And he was also an alumni ambassador. And he presented about CLS at our college as part of his uh, ambassador contri- uh, contribution. Mm-hmm. And the other person I want to thank is Professor Dan Chaffness, who is our campus's fellowship advisor. And so through the support of both of them, you know, through Ben speaking about his experience studying, as well as um, Dan Chaffness guiding me through the application and what makes a strong application essay and such, um, I was able to envision myself you know, finally going and studying in China and becoming proficient in Chinese. Yeah, and I I also, I appreciate you sharing your story because I think it really does highlight too that we have so many different dimensions to our identity. And oftentimes those dimensions are things that we don't see on the surface, right? So I think a lot of times on the show, we've talked about racial identities, gender identities, um, ethnic identities, and those are all very valuable things to talk about. But there are things as well that you don't see, someone's personal background, um, whether they're first-gen college students. So I'd say too, for 
people listening that it's important to remember that we all have those different dimensions. So when we're going abroad, um, just because I am a white cisgendered female and I see another white female with me, I can't assume that we're having the same experiences abroad and taking in the environment in the same way. So I appreciate you, you know, being open to sharing that with us because it's an excellent reminder of just everyone's got stuff going on and to give each other grace in that sense. So when you were studying abroad in China, I guess with your background, how did you feel that you related to the people in your CLS cohort? Mm. There were definitely moments that were really difficult, especially on the Tuesday English check-ins, you know, where everybody's speaking in English and talking about how they called their mom or called their sister or called, mm -hmm. you know, some member of their family. I would just remain silent because it's like, I, I don't have family. Mm -hmm. um, but I feel like the interactions with my host community were actually that much more stark in terms of, you know, one of the first questions folks would ask was, um, you know, how many members uh, are in your family? Or, oh, your mother and father must really miss you, right? Like, um, they must really be concerned about how you are all across the world in China. Like, how do they feel? And that um, kind of involved really one of two responses. And I juggled back and forth between these because on one hand, I could be honest and then bring about, you know, losing my own face because I don't possess filial piety, that I was this independent rogue gal saying my education matters more than my family. Uh, you know, the, the fact that my life was in danger is a completely unrelated fact, mm -hmm. you know? Um, so it's like, that was one response. And there have been multiple people who have told me like, you will never heal until you reconnect and apologize or accept or, you know, forgive your parents. And it's like, that's literally not an option for me. So being able to navigate filial piety in, in China was extremely difficult for me. And on the other hand, so if I don't want to be honest, I could lie. I could, you know, I could describe um, the family of a friend and say like, oh, they're my family. But when somebody asks like, oh, do you have any photos you can share? Mm -hmm. And I don't have any. What do I do? You know? Oh, well, that's weird. And then another lie that I came up with was, oh, no, I'm adopted. I, I grew up with the state and, you know, I'm, you know, like I came up with these lies to kind of protect mm -hmm. myself. But then I felt like I was cheapening my own experiences by not being honest. Mm -hmm. um, but that started to shift um, in between my CLS experiences. So on April 1st, 2016, China passed its first anti-family violence uh, act or law. And that brought about immense conversations. Up, and there were conversations already happening through different women guilds, and et cetera. But that really brought attention to, you know, well, what is domestic violence? What is intimate partner violence? How does that affect heteronormative couples and why are LGBTQ couples like left out of this framework? And that law in of itself allowed me to be more honest to say, I'm going to take a deep breath and I'm going to explain my situation to, you know, those friends who are closest to me. And there are some that would never bring it up again. And then there are some who took me in as their own family members that I'm still in touch with now. And so I feel like overall being vulnerable, um, allowed me to accept more of myself in another country, let alone within my own. Mm -hmm. I think it's 
So interesting. And I'd be curious, Miriam and Naika and Gabriel, to hear your perspectives of your study abroad experiences. But I've found that in China and, and then just listening to you talk as well, uh, Ines, that there is an emphasis on your identity as it is connected to other people. So and, and maybe that does come from like the collectivist versus individualistic aspect of our, our both of our societies. But I know when I was in China, I always had people asking me if if I was married or but why aren't you married? Or it sounds like you they're you know, asking about your family and it's not meant to, to you know, be intrusive. But there is sort of this aspect of you as connected with others as part of your identity. So I'd be curious to know if, if the rest of you on this had similar experiences. Um, Naika, I know you studied in China as well. Um, a little bit here. Um, I do agree with you as sort of regarding, I think, complexities I found were always very confusing in terms of how identities can be sort of complex. And I think sort of in hindsight, even thinking about it, I still don't know if it's an issue of, was just like my language skills sort of not enough to sort of explain explain the complexities of my identity it was always hard for me. Um, so I was born in Haiti, but I'm a U.S. citizen, mm. um, but I'm black. So everyone thought I was at, from Africa. So there was mm. always all those like, yes, I'm American, but I'm also Haitian. This is Haiti. Um, but no, I've never been to Africa. So I found that sort of complexities were really hard to explain. And a lot of times I was like, is it just sort of, um, you know, people meeting someone black for the first time, sort of, I can understand that. Is it sort of my language and capabilities of wanting to be like, oh, no, I'm just American, forget that, and sort of having to feel like constantly I had to erase a part of myself, where I think sort of if the language fluency was there in English, I'd be like, oh, this is who I am, and sort of start checking off the list of, like, I identify as this, and that's something I found that sort of dealing with complexities, um, oftentimes I approach would be sort of to erase a part of my identity. Mm. A question I would get a lot was like about religion. Um, Azerbaijan's like a pretty secular country relatively, but they would always ask it in a way that was like, you're a Catholic, right? And I don't know if it was because like they just assumed mm. Catholic or because like I'm Latino mm. and they could tell I'm Latino and Latinos are like traditionally Catholic. Um, so, and I'm not, I'm personally not very religious. So that was like always a weird question to like answer or receive it. I thought it was interesting that they would like jump to that conclusion. And I initially, I kind of felt uncomfortable just talking about it in general, because I didn't know, um, I guess, like the kind of stance that a lot of people in Azerbaijan have about religion. Um, but I think I got just more comfortable with it over time. Yeah, it sounds like we all had relatively um, similar experiences dealing with those complexities. I also in the Middle East, it's a, actually like you were saying, it's a very communal culture and um, marriage proposals and family questions are basically how you start every conversation if you're a young woman. Um, and so I would use, it's interesting, Ines, that you're talking about, like, I, I, I frankly haven't even thought of, like, my family was just always my go-to excuse for everything. They're the reason why I can't get married, is what I would always say. They're the reason why I'm studying abroad, because they support my education. Like, you craft these narratives. Um, and even down to how I look, like, a lot of people thought I was Arab, and so I'd say, my parents are, you know, you come up with your own lies, too, but it doesn't hold the same um, trauma, I imagine, as it might for someone who's, you know, gone through a, a violent family situation. And so I wonder, um, Ines, it sounds like this experience obviously shaped so much about you. I don't know if I can say that. It sounds like it, it really holds a, an important part of your identity. And I'm wondering, it, it's not 
innately visible. And so is this, while it's something that it seems like is, is really an important part of you, it's also something that no one would necessarily know. And so how did, how were you able to, it sounds like you sort of, you, you sometimes would try to lie sometimes, like you were always constantly interrogating that, but I'm curious how, when we speak about diversity and inclusion, we don't talk about, oftentimes talk about these invisible um, identities, things like autoimmune diseases, things, you know, sicknesses you can't see or, um, ability or, 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 uh, disability, you know, we don't really talk about that stuff nearly as much as we do the other things. So I'm wondering how are you able to sort of ultimately reconcile this invisible, these invisible identities with how people saw you? And was it just a matter of crafting the stories and deciding who to be honest to and who to not, or did you really get to, to a place where you were sort of just able to feel free and feel seen? How did you navigate that? Mm, that's a really excellent question. And to be completely honest, it's something that I still navigate with every single day. Sure. You yeah. know, I, I think one of my motives is that I don't want to be pitied. And so I won't share my story with individuals that I suspect will pity me. Mm. Um, but at yep. the same time, I'm not looking for praise, you know, like I, I'm just another individual trying to, you know, write and get, you know, buy groceries, you know, um, but I think it's highly contingent upon my daily mood, you know, like um, in terms of how open do I want to be? How tired am I have, you know, have I had tea today? Like, am I in a good mind frame to be able to share, you know, something or do I just stay silent? And so that's something that I'm still navigating today. Um, but I've generally found that with individuals who have shared parts of their own vulnerability with me, I can then in turn share my vulnerability with them and certainly vice versa. Yeah, that's a great lesson in friendship in general and just building relationships is it takes someone to kind of break the ice and reveal something. And then it, I feel that it comes crashing down really quickly and then you find commonalities. And I know obviously really different, but moving to Los Angeles by virtually by myself across the country, I've met a lot of people who aren't from here and people are afraid to say they're lonely and are looking for friends. And the second someone reveals that you realize, wait, so am I. And suddenly you find these points of connection. And I think that's like, like what you were saying, Ines, about learning lessons about yourself that you're going to carry back in the States and just in your life and the ways it's molded you, I think that's a really important one. Is, But I also imagine it carries a burden of this, like, am I going to be the one to reveal the truth first? And what happens if we don't reveal truths? Can we not reach, like you were saying before, can we not reach new levels of connection? Um, yeah, so it's it's definitely a lot to, to navigate, but it, it sounds like dealing with that on a day-by-day -day is that's just how, what you have to do. That's just how you survive. There's no generalizing or just coming to one experience, I think. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm curious to go back to something that you had mentioned. Um, you talked about this Anti-Family Violence Act um, in China in 2016. Um, and one thing that we sometimes discuss on this podcast is how um, topics or issues around diversity and inclusion um, present themselves in different countries in comparison to the United States. So it sounds like China is making progress in certain areas, but whether, and you can talk about China or India or anywhere that you've been, how do you think that topics of diversity and inclusion are viewed, accepted, dealt with in those places from your experience? Mm. Um, let me start with an anecdote, actually, um, and then I'll transition more so into connecting the two pieces. Mm -hmm. uh, so during my Gilman experience, I was with a host family 
And within the first week, I started noticing signs of domestic abuse. Mm. And the first time, the first time I saw it, I spoke with my housing director. It was in the same room, like it was very casual. I was just like, hey, this happened. I don't know how to interpret this without bringing up my own background. And the housing director dismissed it. Um, he was also local. And then another mm -hmm. student um, said, oh, I wouldn't be offended. Like violence is just in the culture. Mm -hmm. And that hit me really hard because when I think about Chinese culture, I don't think about violence, you know? I think about the myriad of Wu Tianian, like 5,000 years of history about tea culture, about serving another individual multiple cups in these tiny little cups. Like I think of the beauty and the aesthetic and the language and the rich diversity that is embedded within Chinese culture. I don't think of violence. I still don't. Um, and then a few days later, I witnessed um, uh, an attack, if you will. I'm not going to go into the details, and it's not my story to share. But I remember that that night I had a panic attack, you know, also just delving into my own trauma. And I reached out to my housing director that night saying, like, I need to get out. Um, and I remember him advising me, like, you have to stay there. You cannot go. Like, if you go, that's a dangerous situation. What we'll do is you, after, so I was actually having my placement exam the next day. Mm. He said, come have your exam. After the exam, we'll go back. We'll take all your stuff and we'll leave. Um, so naturally, I did not do very well in that exam. Um, and I was familiar with running away. Like, when I ran away, I had a suitcase and a backpack. And that was it. That's all I had starting with college. And... I knew that if I packed up my things the night before, the family would suspect something. So I left everything out as I had already unpacked. And when I came back that day, I experienced something called saving face. And so they didn't make this about the family. They instead said that I was having financial difficulties. I would no longer be allowed to stay in China. I was going back to the United States and they pulled me out. And as we were walking out, I remember this neighbor came forward to us and asked, what's wrong? Can the foreigner not take how loud they are like are they just too loud and when I spoke to my director afterwards explaining the situation um, and everything I said I want you to provide this mother and her three-year-old resources so that they can get themselves out because nobody can make a victim leave it is it's mm -hmm. ultimately the victim's choice to to be able to recognize abuse for what it is and to be able to advocate for themselves um and so that was that and then I stayed in silence and it was something that bothered me for I mean still bothers me for a great degree was that we were taking saving face above the physical and mental well-being of this mother and her child um and this was this was before the anti-family violence law uh came out um and then probably about two three years later I was a senior in college and um, I actually got a message from my housing director saying, because I provided a statement, like I provided as much as possible. I said, like, mm -hmm. if she ever reaches out, like, I want her to have support. Like, I know what it's like to have to leave and how terrifying that is. And statistically, the day that you leave your abuser is the day that you're most likely to be killed. And so my director reached out and he said, um, she reached, the mother reached back out for your statement. She's filing for divorce and she's taking herself and her child to safety. And in that moment, I felt like I was releasing like a breath that I had been holding for some three years at that, like two, three years at that point that I didn't realize I was holding. It was just like, she's safe. And so coming back to this notion about um, 
you know, how do you connect? And at that time I was debating, like, should I stay with this host family regardless of what's going on so that I can mentor her, you know, like, so I can be there for support for her and her child. And uh, uh, eventually I decided to take the selfish route and to get out. And that tore up my, my consciousness for a very long time. Um, and one of the difficult things, there's a saying, in, there's an idiom in Chinese that says, which means family ugliness must not be aired in public. And mm. so despite the fact that there is an act that provides support from the police, support from legislature and et cetera, for family violence, there's still a lot that is excluded and um, safe shelters that you think of when you think of, you, you know, quote, battered women's shelters. And that's a problematic term in of itself. But when you think of those, those don't operate very well in China. Uh, and a few have actually closed because even though the support is need, it's desperately needed. Um, there's too much shame and losing face and quote unquote dirty laundry being showed to the public by leaving your family because filial piety will always come first so that was a difficult thing to process but, but it's something that i think the u.s can also learn from china is that sometimes silence is the safest thing you can do that sometimes letting someone understand what they are experiencing and seeing how somebody else was able to make this seemingly effortless although certainly not choice to leave can hopefully help someone else make the decision to also leave Wow. I, <laughs> this, that was an amazing story. And it just brought up so many things I think about, like how this idea of foreigners coming into a place and bringing with them their own experiences and understanding of how to do things. And I experienced this as a Fulbrighter English teaching assistant. Like I brought with me my own pedagogy and my own ways of learning. These students were not used to talking to the teacher. They were not used to group work. They were not used to asking questions and walking that line between what you feel, and some of these things are objectively just better than others on both sides. Some of some cultures just have just do things better, and better is maybe not the right word, but you know th there's beauty to be found in both, and good good things to come from both. But how do you, as a person whose probably only main experience is from one place, um, not assert your own like in an imperialistic way, not assert your own structure and system. How did you how were you able to deal with that saving face? Like, did you see in the moment? Did you understand the saving face kind of cultural aspect? Or did you just say objectively, this is wrong? We need to be doing this a different way. Like, how do you how do you balance just and I, I open the floor to everyone if you if you have your own experiences, or if you were able to sort of see like experience, like identify, okay, I am coming from this American culture. This is something that I feel is objectively wrong and should be done a different way, but I'm also working within an existing structure and system. So I'm going to take a step back and I'm going to just sort of hope it falls into place in a different way. Like that is something that I really, really struggled with to not come in with this whole, like, you know, white savior, like Western knows best kind of complex. And, um, would love to know Anes, sort of how you were able to reconcile that with the saving face thing that you were witnessing happening. I think this is one of the biggest tensions with cross-cultural exchange is this idea that you come from a different place, you see things, you think they can be done in different or better ways, and you have to also acknowledge that. It's maybe not your duty to solve it, quote unquote, or yeah, I would love to just open that up to anyone. In my life, like my default mode is silence. Like for me, being silent was a coping skill that helped me survive my childhood. And so whenever I deal with conflict, and that could be an argument in a relationship, it could be a 
um, a debate, you know, whatever it is, I usually default into silence and I overanalyze or analyze the situation and all the possible outcomes of it before I speak. So for me, when I was going back into the apartment to collect my things, I didn't speak the entire time. Um, my housing director spoke on behalf of me and it wasn't until we were in our office, which is a good, I think 30, 45 minute commute away until I was actually able to speak because I was at the point where I had processed enough that I could articulate myself. And that's when I then went to the director saying, I want her to be discreetly provided with resources. Um, and that's something that some of my friends have said, oh, you're not really American or you're not American enough. Like, aren't Americans supposed to be loud? Aren't Americans supposed to be, you know, all these stereotypes. And it's like, well, I'm balancing this own fusion between introverted and extroverted and how silence and reflection plays a role until I do speak. And so I often feel like even in conversations in any country I'm in, that I remain silent for a long time. And then I finally have an answer to the first question that was discussed an hour ago, like now. <laughs> mm -hmm. So being able to balance that, like that's something that I've tried to encourage myself to do more is that I should speak more. I should articulate my feelings and my emotions because, and my thoughts because they're valid. Um, and speaking now isn't going to hurt me and that's okay. And so that's something in my own journey that I've been attempting to work on. But to address this extremely critical point that you bring up about ensuring that I don't enforces, you know, what is a colonial white savior complex, you know, onto my host cultures, you know, this is where it's essential and, you know, really crucial to become informed about our host cultures before we go. You know, this is where we ought to read books from natives, read the news, watch indie films, and be familiar with, you know, not just popular music, but the various music scenes in our target city, such as uh, rap and hip-hop in Chengdu, you know, the metal scene in Beijing, or Jiangxi tea-picking opera, or Kunshu um, opera of Suzhou. You know, this is where we should prioritize the voices of locals over translated works. Um, if I could honestly give a really candid uh, encouragement to people studying abroad, I want to say two things. One is to stop buying those translated Harry Potter books. You know, instead go and ask your language partners or your local friends, whomever, you know, what were the popular books of their childhood, you know, middle school or high school or, you know, whatever proficiency equivalent is there. Um... You know, go and read those books and instead have conversations about that, you know. Um, and I say this because I'm at fault too. You know, the first book that I bought in Chinese was a translated copy of a Western book. But I've since realized that it is far more important for me to prioritize reading books by natives. And I will learn much more about China as well as China's diversity doing so. Like, I, I just, like, the first things that come up to my mind is thinking of Samal's novel, Sahala uh, Dushe, or reading Lin Yutong's essays, or the poetry of Jia Yongming, and, you know, so many others. And I feel like I gained, you know, much more not only in meeting my SMART goals, but also in terms of prioritizing local voices. You know, I can always read English books later, um, but for now, let's prioritize those voices in the language itself. Um, and this is something that, you know, I've had to push myself post-program and will need to continue to push myself um, to, you know, be aware of, you know, for the rest of my life. 
Uh, the second thing I want to say is, you know, we should really stop supporting the McDonald's, the KFCs, the Starbucks, you know, all these other really grossly capitalist adventures that have really stripped the local environment of its indigenous cuisines and heritage. You know, instead, what we should be doing is prioritize learning about the local cuisine of ethnic minorities. You know, don't just eat kalchiedza uh, in Xi'an, you know, even though it is one of my favorite dishes. You know, we should learn about um, the hand-pulled noodles or the hand-shaved noodles. We should learn about the Uyghur, the Huizhu, um, like uh, cultural uh, cuisines and traditions and prioritize, you know, visiting those restaurants or learning about them. Um, so what I think is problematic you know, about both of these, about how um, reading translated Western authors in your target language or prioritizing American chain restaurants over the local indigenous cuisines is that both are actually acts of neocolonialism today. You know, we think of colonialism as an act of, you know, West over East or the global North over the global South. Um, you know, all of these are definitely um, acts of Orientalism. But something that I think we should be challenging ourselves more of and something I've been reflecting on quite um, intensely recently, you know, is of the own cultural colonialism, you know, existing between an ethnic majority and a minority in a host country. You know, if um, if we think, you know, in terms of the U.S., like it's just a shame, you know, if we're only reading books by white, cis, straight male authors. So I think... You know, we should also be mindful of which authors, which directors, which establishments, which restaurants, you know, all these things. You know, which of these are we supporting in our host communities? And we really should make an effort to support queer, to support women, to support gender nonconforming, and uh, to support ethnic minorities, you know, in our target languages. Um, and essentially, you know, as much as we focus on the diversity of the United States, we should also focus on exploring the diversity of our host countries. And I think we'll be the richer for it. Promise. Yeah, and Miriam, I, I wonder, you're, you, it's such a good question. And I wonder if some things, though, are more like, well, I don't know if this is going to sound strange to say, but like more universal truths in a yes. sense that, that those experiences are, are universally shared. I, I know... Um, I had had an experience in China of of watching um, a couple fight on the street and hitting each other mm -hmm. and having that same sense of dread and powerlessness of a similar situation that I viewed at a subway in New York one time. I, I think I I do wonder if it's something like like that, like familial violence, domestic violence that is handled different in different countries, but is an issue that transcends country policies in a sense. And, and in, in that way, is it something that should be handled the same? I don't know. I'm just spitballing here. I think it's a, a really interesting question um, that I do not have an answer to. <laughs> um, yeah, I think this gets onto a larger question. I think you're right, Ashley. And we talk about this. I talked about this so much in college in my various classes, this idea of like, um, uh, what's the word? Human nature and um, yeah, kind of universal truths. 
who determines what's right or wrong? You know, like those kind of like super ethical, like really lofty, like break my brain kind of questions. And I guess the answer, it sounds like actually what you're saying too, or maybe what the answer is, is you have to solve, this is, I think, and we've talked about this a lot in this program, this is exactly why you need people who are running these programs, creating these laws mm -hmm. to be from these places and identities, or at least like have a variety of voices as opposed to outsiders coming in and dictating how it should be done. Like while we maybe disagree or think the saving face thing from our point of view, too quiet, too long, not effective enough, whatever we want to, you know, whatever judgment calls we want to add on to it. Like, may, and maybe that housing director didn't do it well, Ines, in your view. Like, I, I think it's really important that we have um, people from within those systems to ultimately, like, dismantle and reconfigure and make better these systems. Um, so... This sort of uh, leads me to my next question, Ines, and we've talked about this a lot um, with everyone, basically, this idea of you are on a program and the program is run by specific people and you have the Americans stateside who are putting together like the pre-departure orientation and are recruiting, are, are selecting us as the students. And then you have the people on the program who are also Americans. Then you have the host kind of in-country staff. Um, did you, can you talk a little bit about how much information you shared about first gen domestic violence background, even, you know, your, your academic, whatever it was that were important things that, that shape you and and shaped your experience. What, how much did you reveal to the, to the American staff and the in-country staff, either as part of your application or just when you got to China and how did you navigate that? I think this is advice and just, um, guidance that a lot of people probably would benefit from. I know that on my program, we had someone who was just realizing or coming to terms with the fact that she was gay. And I think I've talked about this in a previous episode. She didn't feel supported, so she ultimately left. Um, and would just love to know how, you know, Anes, how you personally dealt with that. What, how much information did you share? Did it come out slowly? What was the reaction? Like, what was that process like? Mm -hmm. um, so I did speak a fair bit about my background in terms of being from a low socioeconomic background. Um, and like my my name is something that I have included in all of my applications, like the story behind what it means and what I want to achieve through mutual understanding and um, and cross-cultural studies. Um, so Stephanie Lee, who is the, she's a wonderful uh, woman who leads the, the China program um, from the DC side. And she and I were in near constant communication up uh, to CLS in terms of applying for my visa and the complications because on the visa application form, you have to list your family members. You have to list your father, your mother, and et cetera. And so I had to write a statement and saying, please under no circumstances, contact these individuals for my safety. Mm. Here's a copy of my legal name change document from a Wisconsin court. Uh, you know, just all these details. And I remember feeling like, oh gosh, I'm, I'm causing her so much burden. Um, I hope she doesn't hate me. And she's very, she's, an amazing uh, individual who has been a wonderful source of contact uh, for me pre-departure. Um, but in terms of the host uh, staff, both, yeah, I think both during my first and second CLS, if something was communicated from DC to them, I'm not aware, but I did not speak to them particularly about, you know, my own background. It, it just wasn't something that I found was necessary. And it was just something that I processed on my own. I did a lot of writing. I did, you know, I wrote poetry, exploring my, uh, my pain, my trauma, my survival. And I journaled quite a bit. And for me, my, especially my Xi'an CLS was just one of the happiest moments of my life. Like I had never felt so free. Um, 
And so I felt, I mean, I felt really liberated through the program because I was used to working about an average of four jobs at one time as a full-time student to support my own education. And so when I got to CLS and it's like, oh, I have all this free time. Mm -hmm. It was, it was like, I could have fun and play like a child, like I could play in the language. Um, And then there were a few students who knew, there were a few locals who knew, but again, that seemed to shift and change. And um, I, I didn't have a strategic plan. Like it was just a, Mm -hmm. we'll see what happens today. Yeah, that's, that is very interesting. And I love the idea, Ness, that you're talking about that you don't have to, some people may feel burdened to share and may want to share these different experiences, but you also don't have to, and you don't have to make a decision. Like you said, strategic plan. I love that you don't have to have this strategic plan that things can, can flow naturally and you can just decide to reveal certain things. Um, did you feel that to, to the people on the program that you did talk about these things with, that they were supportive and how I know people have expressed kind of, um, like uh, not the best experiences with fellow CLS participants. And so I'm, I'm curious if you felt that there was this inclusive um, environment on the program or if you sort of just stuck to certain people and, and that was your safe haven. In terms of fellow CLS uh, classmates, um, there have been several that I've connected with after the program and have since shared parts of my identity with. And I feel like that has been that's been home for me. Like I'm rediscovering home in the souls of other people. Um, and there were, in my second CLS, there were a few folks who I did become quite close with. Um, but I feel overall, like I definitely had a very, well, I did have a strategic plan <laughs> for connecting <laughs> with locals in both Xi'an and, and Suzhou, as well as the other cities that I had studied abroad in. And so for me, it wasn't a, like I wasn't focused on my own identity. I was focused on improving my Chinese language skills. I was focused on learning about the brewing techniques of these five different varieties of tea. You know, I, I was focused on these very tangible, culturally or linguistically or lit, uh, literature-based um, goals that I found um, supported me and my growth and allowed me to become confident in myself, um, which is interesting. So one of my close friends um, from Suzhou, um, he made a remark because it was before our language pledge had begun. We had just landed. I was so excited to be back in China. Like China's home to me. Like it really feels like home. And I had just dove into my own language pledge. I was like, I'm ready. Like, let's go. Uh, And he responded to me. He said, you know, you speak with more confidence in Chinese than you do in English. Mm. And I literally stopped walking. Like we're on Xinjiangu. Like I just literally like full stop. I was just like, I, I do. <laughs> and it was just this complete revelation. I think that you can definitely build a personality or, or build an identity around that. Um, and I also, I just, I have to go back to what you said, um, Ines, when you said finding home in the souls of other people. Oh, yeah. that hit me hard. That, and I'm still sitting here just reeling from that sentence because I think that's such a beautiful sentiment. And I think it's something that, you know, studying abroad and, and meeting different kinds of people can give to you is, is finding that home in the souls of other people. So I, whew, thank you for sharing that. <laughs> that, that hit, that hit hard. Um, but just as we, as we wrap up, um, I'm curious to ask Ines, what advice or words of wisdom you would give to, um, people that are traveling to the host country that you were in, whether it's China or whether it's India now, um, 
any sort of advice for people, whether they are, you know, have similar, a similar background to you or, or, you know, have various aspects of their identity that they're worried about, um, being authentic with as they, as they go abroad, what kind of advice would you give? Mm -hmm. Talk with strangers. Mm. Absolutely. Completely anywhere, everywhere that you feel safe to. So originally, um, especially considered I was considering I was exceedingly painfully introverted before CLS began, I made uh, a promise to myself that three times a week, I would take my lunch tray, I'd find someone who looked like they were nice, um, and I'd bring my tray up to them and ask, can I sit with you? And if they said yes, I'd sit down and start a conversation. And so that evolved into a practice where actually almost every single meal I had um, in Xi'an, because um, we were living on uh, campus dorms then, um, was this meal shared with an individual. And I got to learn about uh, a multitude of backgrounds and just wonderful conversations. And I learned new vocabulary. And, um, and speaking of diversity, so China officially recognizes 50, 56 different ethnic groups. And so for me, this was my first opportunity to speak with Chinese people who weren't ethnically Han. And so I could mm. learn about their hometown, their hobbies, their passions, their dream. And that was one of my questions that I asked every single person was, what is your dream? Uh, and that was just something that we connected over. And um, that, that actually ties back to my Chinese name, which is Xu Meng An, which means promise, dream, safe. Uh, and it's a name that I've also built my identity around. Um, and so, yeah, I would definitely recommend talk with strangers. Um, you set your own parameters, but I would say definitely Make it a number that forces you to stretch a little bit. And who knows what that will bring. That's really great advice. Ines, I want to thank you so much for for just being so honest. And I think it's frankly rare that we hear such um, like frank, like frank, honest talk about kind of these difficulties. And this is definitely something that is not spoken about enough in the world of international education and cross-cultural exchange. So I know I learned a lot from you. Um, but again, like you said, you're just a person trying to, you know, live in a cool new place. So I think it's also important that we remember that this is one story and a whole sea of stories. And um, I'm really glad that we were able to kind of amplify it and give you the mic a little bit. One way that we like to sign off is by having um, the person that we are having our conversation with tell everyone goodbye in the language that they studied or that they're studying. So if you could maybe sign us off with a goodbye in Chinese or goodbye in Hindi or um, whatever floats your boat. Definitely. My favorite idiom in Chinese is and it means um, there are no boundaries to learning. And this is a, a phrase that I found to really resonate with myself in terms of, especially considering my background and, and growing up in rural North Carolina and, and unlearning all the racism, the xenophobia, the, you know, all these isms that I had grown up with um, is to know that I will be spending a lifetime unlearning and mm. that there's no borders to that. And that was something I, I wrote into my graduation cap is that just because I have this piece, very expensive piece of paper, it does not mean that the learning stops. If anything, the learning is just ready to increase exponentially. Um, with that said, um, I will say Zai Tian.
The following audio is a sample from Anessa's poetry collection that she has offered to share with our listeners. Please note that it is based on the experiences that she touches upon in this podcast episode, and therefore contains content that may elicit unsettling responses in some individuals. Listener discretion is advised. This poem is entitled Our First Dance. I apologize for occupying this body. You deserve to dance with someone refined. Extend the hand to dance and I'll flinch, terrified of being hit again. I fled from mouths wanted and unwanted, beards bruising unwilling breasts. I'll deny compliments of my appearance, fabricating fiction of just more men getting forged permission to insert tab A into slot B. Extend a hand again, offering to dance and I'll accept fearing violence and violation if I say no, unable to say no. It's not rape if I say yes to everyone, right? So whatever the choreography, still I stumble, apologetic, unyielding, two cursed feet. So please don't ask me to dance. I'm unworthy of your dimbo. Kisses planted along my neck, so cherished at times, render me lifeless, sobbing, slave to flashbacks. Please, please don't whisper sweet nothings into my ears. I'll only stumble and stutter in the swing and twirl me by my hand, leave me nevertheless, realize I withhold my breath, unknowing such a frail subject, subject to fainting, I apologize for the absence of long, sexy legs. I've denied you a floor, a setting, hacked my legs instead, sewn together by sighing scars. My body is riddled, rippled with trauma. Twisted, collapsed knees, sobbing tease, condemned whore who never learned to walk properly. So please, my dear, don't request a dance from this crown of a nightmare. Thanks so much, everybody, for listening to our podcast today. We want to give a special shout out and thanks to CLSAS and CLS Ambassadors for supporting this programming. And if you guys want to learn more about CLS or CLSAS or be on future episodes of the podcast, go to clsas.org and then the media tab. And thank you, listeners and participants of the pod, for being open-minded and willing to jump into these tough but important conversations.